to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. As we learned last week, each of the gospel writers had, or has, if you will, a different purpose in writing their gospel. There's four of them, obviously. Mark's purpose, as we saw, is to reveal Jesus Christ as both Messiah and as the Son of God. The prologue to his gospel is found in the first 13 verses. We spent time on that last week. And it shows the reality of those two claims by looking at um, John the Baptist and his ministry, and then the baptism of Jesus. If you remember, the Lord in the Old Testament promised that he would announce his coming through an Elijah-like prophet. And that was John the Baptist. And so one of the proofs that Mark relied upon, that Jesus was the Messiah, was that John the Baptist came, since that was prophesied in the Old Testament. The second proof he used was at the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father himself spoke audibly and sent the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove down upon Jesus, which again was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that the Holy Spirit would rest upon the Messiah. And so... When you have God the Father say, this is my Son, it's pretty good evidence that it's the Son of God. John's Gospel reveals that Jesus actually spent the very first part of his ministry. He was here, anybody know how many years Jesus ministered? It's a bit of a, yeah, three and a half years or so is what we expect. And he spent the first part of that, according to John's Gospel, down in Judea, which is the, or I'm sorry, Judea, which is the southern I'm sorry, Judah, I'm sorry, the southern part, down near Judah. He performed his first miracle at a place called Cana. Anybody remember what that one was? Yeah, it was the wedding. That was the first miracle he performed. He turned water into wine. He made a trip to Jerusalem for Passover, which is where he ran into the money changers and ran them out of the temple. That actually happened very early in his ministry. He did it twice. That was the first time. He met Nicodemus when he was down there, the very early part. Anybody remember the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee that had come to him privately? That's where we find John 3.16. And then we see him make his way back up to Galilee, where on that trip he kind of passes through Samaria. Anybody remember what happened in Samaria? He met somebody there, the woman at the well. And so really the Gospel of John indicates that Jesus kind of started in the southern part But what's interesting is Matthew, Luke, and Mark all start Jesus' ministry in the north, in Galilee. They, in some respects, ignore Jesus' initial ministry. And I believe that's probably because they really saw Galilee as the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And part of that is because of the relationship with John the Baptist. Because John himself had said, he, meaning Jesus, must increase And I must decrease. And that's really sort of the way that Mark starts his gospel. He basically says that John had been taken captive. And then he starts Jesus' public ministry. And so even though Jesus did start his ministry in the southern part of Israel, the public ministry really got its launch, if you will, um, in Galilee. And part of that fits Mark's purposes as well, because if if you remember, Mark's gospel is shaped in such a way that Jesus is on a journey. He's on a journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. So even though we know that Jesus spent other time heading down to Jerusalem and kind of moved around a lot, Mark presents Jesus' ministry as starting in Galilee 
and then marching his way down to Jerusalem to ultimately face the reason he came, which is the death, burial, and resurrection. And so it all starts up here in Galilee. And so that's really where we begin today. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 14 through 45 today. And we're going to see something um, in terms of how Jesus' ministry kicked off. And it's going to center around this this, uh, single word, new, if you will. There are four things I'm going to present to you today that indicate the newness with Christ's coming. The first one is this, that Jesus came with a new message and ultimately ushered in a new era. So the first thing is that Jesus Christ came with a new message. Take a look at uh, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now that means he came back up from the south. So after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went back up to Galilee. That's where he's at now. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So after the arrest of John, Jesus travels up to Galilee for the purpose, he says, of preaching the gospel of God. You have to remember the gospel is more literally good news, which means that Jesus came preaching good news. We talked about that last week. It was a phrase of good tidings. It was often tied to emperors as they would rise to the throne or they would celebrate birthdays. They would make announcements that this is the time of good tidings, good news, a new era that's ushered in. And so Jesus came preaching the gospel of God, the good news, the good tidings of God. In fact, if we look down at verses 35 through 39, we'll jump around a little bit, but verses 35 through 39, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. And this is what he says, for that is what I came for. What did he come for? To preach. And so it declares his purpose. And so when John says, or I'm sorry, when Mark says up in verse 1 that he came preaching the gospel of God, Jesus says, that's the primary reason I came, was to preach, to declare the good news of God. Verse 15, he actually spells that out a little bit. What is this good news? What is this gospel that he came to preach? It tells us in verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's two parts to that. The first one is this, the time is fulfilled. Do you notice something about that? I think Kimberly and I, I think even had a discussion about this the other day about the use of the definite article versus the indefinite article. Anybody know what the indefinite, indefinite article is in a sentence? I'm going to put you to the test here. What's a definite article versus an indefinite article? It's a simple, simple one. For example, like the mother baked her son cookies. Well, like, like the mo- the mother. That's the definite article. The is the definite article. And then her son would be the indefinite. Article. That would be indefinite, but more more specifically, a is the indefinite. A cake is different than the cake, correct? A cake can mean any cake, but the cake means something specific. You notice what Jesus said here? Did he say a time is fulfilled? No, he says the time is fulfilled. So he's referring to a very specific time, event, or occasion that's been made full or complete. 
That's what it means to be fulfilled. It's a direct reference to the coming of God's Son to redeem those under the law. Take a look at Galatians chapter 4 with me. Galatians chapter 4. And I apologize for those of you that hated English in high school. Oh no, he's going to talk about English again. I don't need a grammar lesson. Galatians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says. Now I say, as long, verse 1, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now there's, there's a hidden meaning in there. You'll understand it in just a moment here. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons." Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What did he just say there? Basically, that there was a time preordained by God to send His Son to redeem those held bondage under the elementary principles of the world and even the law. And so when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's specifically referring to that. The thing that God has planned through ages past has now come to fruition, which was specifically Jesus Christ coming to redeem people. We know that that was God's plan for both the Jews and the Gentiles because he promised that to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, through the prophets of the Old Testament. The kingdom of God here is kind of an abstract reference. I, I've got this, uh, I'm looking forward to reading it if I can ever get around to it. I just bought a, a book, it's about that thick. Um, it's all about the kingdom of God. It's a whole theology on the kingdom of God. Now what's interesting about that is, um, I went to Grace Theological Seminary, which was founded by Alva J. McLean. And Alva J. McLean, even today, um, he's obviously no longer living here, he's with Christ, but... Um, wrote a book called The Greatness of the Kingdom, which is considered even today to be probably one of the best books ever written on what the kingdom of God is. Still to this day, well, another author has just recently come out with a book um, that sort of picks up where McLean left off. And the reason I came across it was because um, some folks were kind of likening it to, if you want just... Two books to understand the kingdom of God. It would be Alva J. McLean's book and, the brand, and this brand new one. So I actually picked up a copy of it, looking forward to reading, to reading it. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge topic. And it isn't just about Jesus Christ setting up his reign here, but it's kind of a, best way to describe it, it's kind of an abstract reference to, to one thing. It refers to God's era of rule and governance over his creation. So if you, if you want to take and try to summarize what God's kingdom is, it's the idea of God's governance over his kingdom in sort of a new way. And that's really what Christ initiated, was God came in the flesh. He established or began the fulfillment of his 
final phase of ruling over his creation. And for us, that's really, it started with Christ. It will ultimately continue in phases. We're now the church age, if you will, God building his kingdom through the church. But Christ will ultimately come. He'll establish his thousand-year reign. That's another phase. And then ultimately at the end of that, he locks up Satan completely, permanently, throws him into the... or He actually locks him up before that, but he throws him into the lake of fire and, and deals with that finally, and then creates a new heavens and a new earth. And then from there on out, it's the same for all eternity. And that all began God's new era of ruling over his creation. His kingdom had come to fulfillment. Now, it's one of those sort of already here but not quite yet things that we find in Scripture. Sometimes there is language used in the Bible that refers to certain things that haven't fully, completely come to fruition, but nonetheless they've started and they exist. So for instance, in Romans chapter 8, it said that we've already been glorified. Have we? Not quite, but it's begun. And it will ultimately come to fulfillment. And so that's sort of like God's kingdom. Jesus here says that he came... Because the time and the kingdom of God had come. What's interesting there too is that both of those things are referred to in what's called the perfect tense, which mean they already started, but they're continuing into the future. And so it's basically a way of saying it's all here, but it's still yet to come. It's started and it will be complete. It's not a It's not a uh, tense that we often use in English. But um, as we look at this, basically what we find is this. The good news that Jesus preached was that God had now begun to bring about the fulfillment of his redemptive plan for mankind by sending the Messiah, which ushered in a new era of God's kingship and rule over his creation. Let me read that again. The good news that Jesus preached was that God had now begun to bring about the fulfillment of his redemptive plan for mankind by sending the Messiah, which began a new era of God's kingship and rule over his creation. Which kind of fits what Mark said earlier when he says the king or the um, good news, the good tidings, what he says at the very beginning of his gospel, the beginning of the good news, the good tidings of Jesus Christ. If you remember when we studied that, he was linking that, if you will, to this idea that when emperors rose to the throne or they celebrated birthdays, it was ushering in a whole new era because they considered their emperors divine. That's what we find here, is that Jesus ushered in a new message, if you will. God's kingdom is at hand. The time had come. There's a second part to that, though. There's an expectation. Jesus also preached that his good news demanded a response. Look at verse 15. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is hand. And you might stick a therefore, if you will. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent literally means to change your mind. But more than that, it means to go on and change your behavior as a result. Change your attitude. So when one says, I've repented of my sin, it means that not only have they thought differently about that sin, but it's resulted in changed behavior. The term specifically refers to changing the mind. But it implies that when you change the mind, it changes behavior. Then he also says, believe in the gospel. The essence of faith is to believe the gospel, which reveals Jesus Christ as the Savior. One of the 
struggles that we face here in the United States is that we have many in the church, if you will, that claim they have faith, but don't believe the gospel. You can't have faith without the gospel. You can't say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in the gospel. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ came to preach repentance, if you don't believe that God has ushered in the final stage of his redemptive plan for mankind, then you don't have faith. Prior to Jesus Christ coming, God's redemptive plan was still somewhat of a mystery. We've seen as we've studied through parts of the Old Testament that God very slowly, in kind of a slow leak, if you will, um, shared his redemptive plan, revealing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more over time. So prior to Christ's coming, God had not revealed everything specifically. In fact, I want you to turn to Romans chapter uh, 16 with me. Romans chapter 16, we're going to jump down to verse 25. (coughs) Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest... And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. What does Paul say there? He says that up until Christ, part of God's redemptive plan was still a mystery. It had not been revealed, but with the coming of Christ, it had been manifest, made known to those who are willing to accept it. Up until the birth of Christ, most of God's redemptive plan focused on Israel. The calling of Abraham, the making of Israel, that's what we see. Now, Gentiles could always participate. They had to convert, if you will. God didn't exclude the Gentiles, but I'll say it this way, did not go out of his way to reach Gentiles. It was primarily focused on Israel. That was God's tool. When Christ came, that changed. Because Christ came not just to read redeem the Israelites, but also Gentiles. And Paul makes that clear. I mean, the fact that Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles as a Jew himself, it became very clear, ah, God's going to the Gentiles too. In fact, when when Paul went back to Jerusalem and shared his experience among the Gentiles, there's a little light bulb that went on. Oh, so God's pouring out his spirit on Gentiles too. His plan must include... The Gentiles, and all of a sudden the little wheels start turning, they go, oh, isn't that what he said to Abraham? That he would save not just Abraham and his people, but all the nations through Abraham's seed. A little hidden in the Old Testament, but fully revealed now. So, we'll wrap up this section by simply saying this, that Jesus Christ came with a new message. A new message. He had fully revealed God's redemptive plan for mankind. He had ushered in a new era of God's governance over his creation. Let's go on into verse 16. Go back to Mark chapter 1. We'll look at verse 16. Second thing we see here is that Jesus came not just with a new message, but a new mission as well. As we've already said, God really focused primarily on Israel throughout the Old Testament. 
When God called Abraham the father of a great nation, we see it play out in the Old Testament where God's redemptive plan unfolds primarily through his interaction with Israel. But we're also told of Abraham that God would ultimately bless the nations or the world through Abraham, but we don't really see that play out very well in the Old Testament. So the first part of God's plan focused on the first promise, the creation of nation is in Israel. However, Jesus ushered in this new era, brought about this new message, if you will, but also brought about this new mission of now including those Gentiles in God's plan. Think about this for a second. Israel's purpose and plan in the Old Testament was not really evangelistic in nature, was it? It kind of reminds me in some respects of, let's say, the Amish today. You know, somewhat cloistered, somewhat their own community. Sort of shut off in some respects to outsiders. But they'll welcome you in if you shop at the right stores and wear the little hat and put on the clothes and give up your iPhone. Okay? Though I hear that's becoming more popular in that culture. Um, They were not primarily evangelistic. God was building a nation of wholly separate people for himself, preparing the world for the coming of Messiah, ultimately. So they weren't really evangelistic. However, Jesus' mission now was purely evangelistic, if you will. In fact, notice that he tells the, um, the apostles here, that he's going to make them fishers of men. Take a look at verses 16 and 17. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So Jesus' ministry begins here with the calling of men and says, I will make you fishers of men. Now this is actually the second time that he's called these men. He actually met them, according to John's gospel, before he departed for the southern part of Israel. It says there that he called them and they followed him. But apparently what happened is when Jesus then departed for Judah, they stayed at home and continued fishing. So now Jesus comes back to Galilee, he goes back to those same men, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and he now issues a more permanent call. Come, follow me, because now I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so it says this time that they drop everything, and they begin to follow him. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 13 with me briefly. Chapter 3, verse 13, And Jesus went up on the mountain... And he summoned those whom he had himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he would send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, and then he mentions the twelve here. So he very specifically calls out these twelve men that they might go out and preach, we're told. Jump over to chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. And he summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs, and gave them authority over all the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. He goes on, he basically tells them to go out and to preach the good news, the exact same message. In fact, that was the passage I was working on last night. 
turn to the very end of the book. Well, actually, we'll just... I know we can. Go ahead and tune to, turn to the very end of the book, chapter 16. This part of Mark's Gospel is a little bit in question. There's some old manuscripts that don't include this section. There's some manuscripts that do, so most of your Bibles will put it in brackets, indicating that they're not sure if Mark wrote it or not. But if you look at chapter 16, the end of it, verse 15, He said to them, meaning the disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Jump down to verse 20. And they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. We all know the Great Commission from the end of Matthew that says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching. And so Jesus came not just with a new message, but he also now came with a new mission. And that mission was evangelistic in purpose. He came, he trained men to go out, sent them out and told them, now you go train other men and women to do exactly what I've given to you. So now we have not just a new message, but we also have a new mission. Very different. God's purpose in the Old Testament was always to save mankind. But again, Israel wasn't primarily evangelistic. Where now, the church is purely, in some respects, evangelistic with a new mission. Uh, Jesus also came with new authority. We'll look at that. It's the third part here, verse 21 through 28. Jesus' first recorded teaching in the synagogues was found in Luke chapter 4, and it did not go very well at all. In fact, it was Jesus' hometown. If you remember, he goes to the synagogue. They're all crazy about his teaching. They love what they hear. He reads from a passage in Isaiah, I think it was Isaiah 60 or 61, which is a prophetic announcement of the coming of Messiah. And Jesus says, well, I'm it. This has come true today. And then he tells the people in Nazareth, Nazareth, his hometown, but you people aren't going to accept that. You're going to run me out of town. You're going to reject me. You're going to kill me, persecute me. And they get all upset. What do they do? They take him out and try to throw him off a cliff. Isn't that just the way it usually works? You know, you accuse somebody of doing something. They say no or not, and then they do it. So his first teaching in the synagogue didn't go too well. However, when Jesus began to go out among the people outside of Nazareth, the reaction was very different. Look at verses 21 through 22 of Mark chapter 1. I'll start with 21. They went into Capernaum. That's almost, that really became Jesus' headquarters. It's by the Sea of Galilee. That kind of became his home base, if you will. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, the scribes were the Old Testament scholars. They were the, the teachers. They were the ones with all the fancy letters after their name. They were the ones that stood in the pulpit and had the nice little robes on with the stripes on their sleeve and the funny little hat and the tassel. Tradition suggests that they deprived their authority, they derived, <laughs> deprived is probably a good term, derived their authority from the writings of other scribes, often quoting what others said about the law, which means they didn't spend a whole lot of time telling you what the law said, but rather what other people said about the law. And the more people you could quote, the bigger names you could reference gave you authority and credibility. It's sort of like somebody asked me, the, I think it might have been Dustin, we were on the phone. Yeah, he doesn't ask questions, he knows everything. Um, but, uh, you know, holding certain views on certain topics and issues. And when people approach you and they ask you about that, and they, they don't like what your answer is, or they, they you know, have a problem with whatever you say, and how do you, how do you handle that? Well, I kind of explained. I said, you know, oftentimes what happens is when people question what I believe, 
they're going to question it based off of their own personal convictions. And I have no problem being confronted. You know, I have issue, you know, all kinds of different theological points of view on different issues in the scripture. And I love to debate those with people. But I love to debate them over the text. Because I know that I'm not always right. And all that comes is a shock that I might think that. But I'm not always right. Stop smirking, my family. Um, but I love for people to sit down and say, you know what, I think you're mishandling this text. Then let's talk about it. Because my heart is to be accurate with the text. But when they start quoting, and this is more often what happens, well, so-and-so says, or this person says, or my pastor says, or... You know what? I sort of look at that and kind of say, I don't care who your pastor is. Let's talk about Jesus. You know? I think he trumps your dude. And likewise, if people will come to me and to say, I don't care what you think, Mike. Let's talk about what Jesus said. Okay, now you got my attention. Now we can talk. And so... The interesting thing here is these, these scribes were known for their arrogance and being proud and for quoting all these big names. And the more names they could quote, the more authority they had. And the funny thing is, the people got it. They understood. Because when Jesus started to preach, he heard something different. In fact, the other thing that was unique about the, well, I shouldn't say unique, but these scribes would oftentimes teach and quote Proverbs all having to do with traditions of men and things that came from mankind, not so much from God's Word. In fact, as you look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 5, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, verse 5, you don't have to turn here, I'll just read this to you, but Jesus has some strong words that gives us an indication of what these guys were like. He says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? Because they were used to teaching the traditions the religious heritage. But they eat bread with impure hands. The Bible, the Old Testament didn't say they couldn't eat without washing their hands. That was a good hygiene, of course. But they weren't condemned for doing it. But they taught you were sinning if you didn't wash your hands. And not only wash your hands, but wash it a certain way. They would take these basins and they would fill them with water. And they would wash their hands and then they have to lift their hands up so that the water would stream down. They had this whole process. And if you didn't follow that process, you somehow weren't following the traditions. And Jesus says in verse 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honor or this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts or their heart is far away from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the traditions of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. So Jesus said these people were experts at doing everything other than teaching the Word of God. And like I said, the people took notice because when Jesus begins to preach, they have a very different response. Look at verse 23 through 26. He says, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Lord, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Verse 27, They were amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commanded even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. 
Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Now, now, Mark gives the impression here that what made these people think Jesus was teaching with authority was just the casting out of the demon. However, other places we find, including at the very end of Mark or at very end of the um, Sermon on the Mount, we hear this: They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, "What is this? A new teaching with authority?" At the end of the um, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually, or they, they actually declare something very similar, that they were all amazed by the new authority that Jesus handled the scriptures with. In fact, probably the greatest example of Jesus' authority when it comes to teaching is the Sermon on the Mount and the people's response to that. And it's because Jesus didn't come quoting everybody else. He didn't teach like the Pharisees did. He taught them the Word of God. And part of it's because He could speak the Word of God, but the people recognized something when he taught. They recognized that there is something uniquely different about the way that he teaches and the content of what he taught. And it stood in stark contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. I don't think it's any shock to you folks that I struggle with a lot of what happens in our churches today, with a, with a lot of the teaching that we see in the pulpits across America. Much of what we see has um, degraded into um, pontification, I'll call it. Where guys get up and they just teach from their heart. They threw their sermon together by reading through a bunch of commentaries or other books or other things. And they get up to teach and maybe they throw in a Bible verse here or there. And maybe sometimes that Bible verse matches what they say. Maybe sometimes it doesn't, which is more often the case. I was listening to, um, I was actually reading something the other day by Andy Stanley. And I counted up the number of times that he said, the Bible said, and then didn't even follow it up with not just a quote, but even any indication as to where that came from in the scriptures. And I found myself as I'm reading through it going, okay, where does it say that? Just at least give me the opportunity to look it up. And it wasn't so much that whether he was what he was saying was right or wrong, I, that wasn't my point. It was just... You're setting yourself up as this authority, but you, you won't tell me where to find it. You won't tell me, was it Paul? Was it Peter? Was it Jesus? Was it Isaiah? Where, is, where does the Bible say that? And I, as I read through this article, uh, I think he, he referenced maybe one or two half quotes from the scriptures. And ultimately, in the end, what he was saying was wrong. It didn't line up with the scriptures. In fact, his statement was primarily, Jesus only gave us one command, to love others. Anybody else recognize that there's something wrong with that? If he would have said, Jesus gave us two commands, I would have gone, yeah, okay, there's actually more than that, but two, loving the Lord first and loving others. But he completely ignored that. And he emphasized over and over and over, only the one command, loving others. my, My purpose is not to trash Andy Stanley. But from there, I went and I listened to a number of his sermons. And many of them that I listened to were the very same way. There wasn't much theological content that came from the scriptures, but rather personal opinions and pontification. That was the scribes. You want to know why people are are departing the church in groves today? They show up on a Sunday morning and they don't get fed. That's part of it, not the only part of it, but they don't get fed. They're starved. And so when Jesus shows up and begins to teach, immediately the fair or immediately the people realize and recognize the authority that he has because of two things. 
One, the way that he taught them from the scriptures. And the other part of it was the miracles that he did. Which backed up what he taught. Clearly you can't ignore that. Which is why Jesus, when he sent out the apostles, sent them out with the ability to cast out demons and heal. It was a way to validate. You know, if some dude showed up here and opened the word to us and preached something and then literally healed somebody, we'd probably take up notice, right? What what do we see oftentimes with the healers on television? You know? You can't even validate the healings, (laughs) you know? But in Jesus' day, it was very different. Let's look at the very last piece, if you will. Jesus came not just with a new mess or a new message, not just with a new mission, not just with new authority, but Jesus came with new compassion as well. And I think this is something that this is one that I, I found myself kind of kind of stopping and thinking through, wow, that's kind of interesting. I never really thought about that. The scribes and the Pharisees were brutal. There was no compassion. You know, you violated the law and what happened? You remember the woman that was caught in adultery? Man, they drag her in front of Jesus, throw her on the ground, pointing fingers from a strictly Old Testament law perspective, they were right. She was caught in adultery, she was supposed to be stoned. But how did Jesus handle that? Do you remember? He pointed his finger at all the Pharisees and he said, look, actually stop, if I remember it, that's the one where he wrote in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. (laughs) I wish I could have been there, but he kind of wrote something in the dirt and they're all looking at it. One by one, they all began to do what? Walk away because he said, look, I'll give any one of you the permission and the right to stone this woman if you don't have any sin. Anybody want to step up? Anybody want to do that? Come on. What happened? One by one, they all walked away. And then what did he say to the woman? Yeah, go and sin no more. Did he stone her? No. Think about David in the Old Testament. David basically puts this plan together to murder somebody because he wants to take the guy's wife. He goes and he sleeps with the guy's wife. He then doesn't want to get caught, so he comes up with some plans to get the guy killed, and the first plan doesn't work as he works. He finally gets the guy killed. God could have killed him for multiple reasons, right? Because the law, you kill somebody, you get put to death. You commit adultery, you get put to death. As a king, some of the things David did could have been put to death. But what does God do with, with him? He sends Nathan the prophet to him. And because David's response when confronted is one of remorse and confession and in some respects penance that didn't earn his forgiveness. But the way that David responded, did God take his life? No. Now there were consequences. But yet when you come to the Pharisees and the scribes, you find zero compassion They were brutal in the way that they applied the law. They were brutal in the way that they exercised things. They made the people in culture and society that most desperately needed the Lord, the sick, the poor, the unhealthy, and made them outcasts. Pushed them out to the fringes of society. No compassion. And so Christ comes, 
And this is remarkable to me because you think about it, God in the flesh now, having to be with those people that are opposed to him, sinners if you will, you would expect if anybody had a right to not want to associate with those who are lawbreakers, would be God, would it not? No, it isn't because of what we've seen in the Old Testament. He's a God of compassion. And so Jesus comes on the scene and is very different. He came with a new compassion. There's three things here. We won't spend a ton of time here going into great detail, but there's three things that happen now if you look at this. We start in verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogues, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. So Jesus immediately, as he walks into Peter's house, sees his mother-in-law there. Now, what the text, I don't believe the text says it here, but other Gospels indicate that this was on the Sabbath. Jesus took heat for healing on the Sabbath because it was considered work. The Pharisees and the scribes wouldn't so much as help a person who's outside the gates, who's hungry and starved, wouldn't even toss them a piece of bread because it was a Sabbath and that would be considered work. And Jesus walks into a home, doesn't care if it's a Sabbath or not, realizes that Peter's mother is in dire straits, and so what does he do? Reaches out and heals her. Part of that's because later Jesus says that the Sabbath wasn't made for man, it was... The sa- or I'm sorry, that man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. The Sabbath was supposed to be a time of rest, refreshment, encouragement. The reason God prohibited working on it was because it violated that rest. But it never violated, or it never prevented doing good. And yet the Pharisees wouldn't even do good. And so Jesus came and expressed his compassion. I think there's a reason why Mark groups all three of these together, because the one thing they all have in common is the compassion of Christ. The second example we find in verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Basically what we show here, what we find here, is another act of compassion. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went out into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. So we have in this instance here, the whole entire city coming out, crowding around Jesus, him healing the sick and casting out demons, and it says that it was the whole city that had come out, And Jesus heals them. Not only that, but it says that he heals them from morning until late in the evening. Can you imagine how exhausting that must have been? At times we're told in the scriptures that Jesus even had trouble going into some cities because the massive crowds that would come out. We're told elsewhere that Jesus would sometimes heal without eating lunch or dinner. In fact, his family thought he was nuts from a human perspective fleshly perspective, Jesus would work himself to exhaustion to where when he got done, he'd have to find himself going out into the wilderness, trying to find a way to escape just because of the physical, 
mental, emotional exhaustion that he faced in human form. What drove him to do that? Compassion. He didn't heal everybody, but he healed many. Oftentimes to the point where it was overwhelming. In fact, I've got this picture at home that I absolutely love, which is Jesus looking down over Jerusalem. I'm not much of a put Jesus' face on your wall in your house, because that's usually a misrepresentation, but this is just simply one of him looking down on Jerusalem and weeping over Jerusalem, you know, seeing the condition that they're in, not just physically, but spiritually. And the reason he wept was because of his compassion for them. But his compassion went beyond just their spiritual need. He saw their physical needs too. That's why it's so important for the church to not ignore physical needs. Now, the scriptures do not lay out that our job is to be here for the sole purpose of setting up soup kitchens and healing the society and culture. That's one of the problems with this, sort of this new social justice movement that we see with a lot of churches, that the gospel has taken a side seat to everything else, that we're supposed to redeem culture and society and take care of all the evils. But Jesus didn't do that. But he did heal people as part of his ministry because of his compassion. So as they came to them, he would heal them. The third instance here involves a leper. That's in verses 40 through 45. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him immediately and sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and he began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. That's actually your answer as to why Jesus told the man, don't go tell anyone. Because he knew the crowds would come out and overwhelm. And they did. But you notice in this text, this is a leper. Lepers were outcasts, highly contagious. The Pharisees certainly would not have touched a leper. In fact, lepers were required as they would enter into an area or a community to let people know, I'm a leper, to warn people to stay away from them. They were off limits. They were outcasts. Had difficulty taking care of themselves or having what they needed to survive. And yet Jesus has absolutely no trouble. Now you could argue, well, it's because he's the Son of God, he's not going to get leprosy. I'm not so sure that's the case. I don't think Jesus would have cared. Because that wasn't his concern. It says instead that as this man came to him, Jesus simply had compassion on him. It was his compassion that drove him to do exactly what he did. And I love the fact that this leper approaches him and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He didn't demand anything of Christ, but rather said, if you're willing to do it. That's striking too, considering that Jesus had healed hundreds, maybe thousands, we don't know. So the guy could have easily showed up and said, you healed them, healed me too. But he didn't. Very humbly approaches him and says, if you're willing, could you do it to me too? And we're told Jesus had Compassion. And so we see these three great stories that indicate that when Jesus came, 
It came with a new compassion that Israel had not seen in their leaders. The very ones who were supposed to be expressing compassion were supposed to be God's representatives. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders were all arrogant and proud and sidelined these people. Showed zero compassion. So with Christ we see something very different. 